everybody, Billy Hulting here. Thanks for tuning in. We've got two great guests tonight on the Jazz Roundtable. Gordon Goodwin and Bruce Lofgren are two well-known and respected big band composers in Los Angeles. They each have a very unique and progressive approach to creating their big band charts, so we're going to talk about their process of writing, orchestrating, and approach to music. We're going to play a lot of examples as well, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. As always, the Jazz Roundtable is recorded in front of a live internet audience. I've edited a bit from the original show, taking out the reading of chat room comments and tip shoutouts, because they don't work so well in the podcast format. But everything else is there from the live show. The shows are free, but if you'd like to leave us a little something in the tip jar, I explain how to do that during the show. Please note, live at 0bpm.com is spelled live a-T-Z-E-R-O-B-P-M.com. We always love it if you subscribe and leave a review as that really helps us spread the word. I'd like to make this show better and you can help. Please send ideas to podcast at live at zero bpm.com. Thank you. Have fun listening. Welcome to the Jazz Roundtable, brought to you by Live at Zero BPM with your host, Grammy Award-winning percussionist and mallet player, Billy Holting. Tonight's guests, Gordon Goodwin and Bruce Lofgren. If you care to donate, click on the donate slash tip jar link in the description or on our website at live at zero bpm.com slash tip jar. You can also tip on Venmo at Z-E-R-O-B-P-M. And now, let's get to the music with your host, Billy Halting. Hey, everybody out there in internet land. Welcome to another Jazz Roundtable. This is number seven. So again, you know, we're, we're live. We're completely tip-based. So if you want to send it a tip, I'll put it in the chat rooms. And I will put it, uh, and it's in the description of both on Facebook and YouTube. And I think on Twitch, even if you're on Twitch. And also, we're going to talk about, show some videos and play some clips of audio. And I've already put the links to the full versions in the descriptions, both on YouTube and Facebook and Twitch. So immediately when you're done, if you want to go check out the full-length videos or the hear the whole tunes or find out where you can uh, download or buy some of these albums. It's already there for you. Normally, I just put it in the show notes, but I wanted to, to get it ahead of time. So anyway, while you're out there, like and subscribe or follow or friend or whatever format you're looking at. But the, the likes really help push us up the list and other people can find us. But enough yapping away. Let's get the guys in here. Hey, Gordon. Hey, Bruce. How are you? Howdy. Hey, Billy. <laughs> so glad you could join us. Now, this I originally... Uh, I, I don't know how this came up, but I just I started getting onto themes for the shows, and I just thought one really interesting thing would be to have some big band composers on here to explain. Uh, well, you guys are composers, just generally, but you seem to have chosen as your personal expression the big band format, which is awesome. And I've been hearing for 40 years they're coming back, so I'm really excited <laughs> about that. <laughs> is that right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I want to dive in, and one thing we like to do on the show is I call it the origin stories. How did you get into music? How did you get into then composing? Why don't we start with you, Gordon? I, I got in when I was in kindergarten, actually. And really? I was lucky. Early? I had a kindergarten teacher who, well, she saw that I didn't like doing my scales, and my hand and exercises. And so she bribed me and she bribed me with something I didn't know I wanted, which was, she would say, if you do your scales next week, I'll let you write a song. Uh, I said, what is that? <laughs> I'm in kindergarten. Right. And she goes, you know, write a song. So do your scales. And next week. So I kind of did my scales and then she goes, okay, now what we're going to do. And she, she wrote a little uh, left-hand simple little left hand uh, melody. She goes, now you go home, put the right hand to it. So I did it. 
I just kind of actually, I remember I harmonized it in thirds and that was, that was what I did. Kind of cheating, but I was in kindergarten, right? But then the next week she says, good, now you're going to, next time I want you to write a march. And I said, well, I, what is a march? So she said, she played a little bit and explained it to me. So I went home and wrote four bars of a march. And the next week she goes, all right, now we're going to write a waltz. It's in three, four times, three beats to the measure. Da, 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 da. And she showed it to me. So I went home and wrote a crummy little waltz, right? Every week she had me create something at a really early age, which got that in my head that I guess you people do this. People sit in front of a piano or whatever and come up, make something out of nothing. So that led to um, uh, fourth grade. I, I had a Tijuana brass band. I was a huge Herb Alpert fan. Had a little Tijuana brass band, and, and but I just played his tunes. I bought a little Tijuana brass songbook and, and got, you know, kind of cajoled a lot of my friends to come over. We tried to play it. But it wasn't until seventh grade when I heard the music of Count Basie and specifically Sammy Nestico that I had that epiphany that I have to do this. Whatever this is, it felt... It felt, uh, you know, um, like I belonged there. It resonated with me. So I wrote my first chart at se in seventh grade. I didn't know how to do it, but I had a band director who was really supportive. His name was Robin Snyder. And he, he said, you write it, we'll play it, you know. And so I kind of figured it out, which is kind of what we all do as composers. We all sit down and maybe we can study other people's work. But it, really, at the end, we figure out what works for us and how we um, – put it together so it sounds right. Well, that, so um, that was the start. That's really interesting that you started that young because a lot of people get into composing after they've been playing for years. Now, what instrument were you playing back then? I was playing the piano. Yeah. And then clarinet in fourth grade and saxophone in seventh grade. So don't, don't misunderstand. I was not a buddy Mozart. They were, they were, you know, nothing, little pieces. But the fact that I did it at all, I guess, is noteworthy enough. Well, you... You know, with anybody who writes, you start somewhere, and you didn't wait till you were twenty-one to write crappy little pieces. You just got them yeah, done when you were early. So yeah. that's uh, that's awesome. The crappy that's ones came much later. Do you do you still have any of those charts? I uh, uh, I I have them in storage somewhere. If I was uh, organized enough to know where in storage, I could probably dig them out. But. <laughs> That's yeah, cool. I, now, think, Bruce, I think you probably do have them. You, uh, well, now, Gordon, when I, I knew you were, went to Cal State Northridge a few years before I did, and I always thought of you as a sax player there. Was that your main no, instrument? Okay. But yeah, yeah. Well, as, a, as a music major, uh, I decided, well, I, I just first decided to be a clarinet major, but then the clarinet instructor at the time, mm -hmm. he, he pulled me aside and he goes, now, if you're going to study with me, I, I insist that you don't play the saxophone. Don't play the piano. I don't want you to do any outside gigs. I don't want, I want you to commit to this clarinet. I want you to focus on it. And I thought, what is he talking about? I went to Northridge to play in the jazz band there, right? And so <laughs> I talked to my counselor. It was a, a man named uh, Bob Delwart, uh, a really nice man. And he said, no, nah, why are you clarinet major? Are you crazy? He goes, you got to study with Bill Hawkins. Bill Calkins is a sax teacher. He's also plays flute and clarinet. He's a session player back in the, you know, a lot of session TV work in the 60s and 70s. He's your guy. So I changed majors and uh, was able to uh, eventually, probably 25 years after that, put that horrible black stick 
in the closet, <laughs> never to be seen again. So one, of the, one of the great things, Bill Hawkins was still around when I was there. And one of the cool things about Northridge is you, you had like cats, like players and cats back in the day were, were teaching there. I mean, I studied with Jerry Steinholz, the percussion teacher. Jerry, right. just, you know, they, they just, they were cool. They were just the real live embodiment of cool. And they were great. And now, did you say that Bob Delwart was your counselor? He was, yeah. He was mine also. He was what an amazing he guy. <laughs> and you know, it's so kind of interesting how life works because Bob, you know, kind of saved me at a, when I was just trying to get a handle on what college was like. And shortly after that, I started to give saxophone lessons to his daughter Janine, right? Who grows up to get her teaching credential and teaches my kids oh, in, wow. in uh, grade school band. That's so. Crazy. There it is. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, Bruce, what about you? How did you get it? Well, you, you started out as a guitar player, right? Right. Yeah, I was 13 or so, and uh, listening to Chuck Berry and listening to uh, Billy uh, Butler from the uh, from that uh, great uh, honky talk record that the Bill Doggett uh, trio, which was a great organ trio in New York, uh, played, and I turned the uh, I had a record player that played at 78, 45, 33, and this is the cool part, 16. Wow. 16 is exactly pretty much about half 33, so I could take a Chuck Berry album and turn it down to 16. The notes were half as fast, yeah. but in the same key he was playing. So that's how I started out playing. And, um, I was studying with a guitar teacher at the same time, but I, I spent a lot of my time listening to records, blues records, rock records. And then I had my first group after a couple of years. It was uh, guitar, bass, piano, drums, and two saxes, alto and tenor. And those two guys kind of made up their own parts. I had no idea what to do for them. Mm -hmm. But uh, within a couple of years after that, uh, and well, actually, it was a little bit more than that. And I was in college. I, I was the band leader of a five-piece band at a place called St. Michael's Alley, two nights a week. And it was my job to put the horn parts together. That's where I really started asking about transpositions and stuff. And, uh, you know, because I had been studying the guitar and knew enough about writing music to, you know, write the lines for them. And then now I knew how to transpose. And around that time, I got a gig playing with a 10-piece band with six horns. And the uh, the arranger was Butch Nordahl, who uh, is a pretty well-known guy, beautiful guy. His real name is Marius Nordahl. He's from Seattle. Yeah. yeah. But he went off to North Texas and, uh, and actually played with the 1 o'clock band and recorded some of his stuff there. But when he left for North Texas, he kind of turned over the 10 piece band to me to do for me to do charts with now had, I, had I you did had about any... 50 charts for them in the two years before I moved to LA had you been experimenting with writing for that band before that or was it no. just like hey Bruce do this and the I, I just would... seemed to know how to do it you know and, yeah. and I would you know try voicings and learn which ones didn't work and, uh, and then uh, stuff like that but I never I never went to music school at least until I went I would take like uh a community college three-month uh, course in, you know, conducting or maybe a big band. I took one from a guy named Ralph Mutzler, who was from Indiana, a composer of the from the 1950s that was was big and uh, important educator. And I took a arranging class for him that lasted for one or two quarters at uh, 
But now, Brent. when you moved to L.A., yes, sir, you started. Uh, you met uh, Dr. Albert Harris. I did. I yeah. immediately signed up uh, for private uh, orchestration lessons with him, and he had me basically for the first six months or so uh, doing either expansions or contractions of. of he would give me a piano. Uh, piece, you know, like a two two line piano piece, and have me orchestrate it for a big group, or he'd set the instrumentation for the group, and you want me to orchestrate it for a bigger group, and then he would give me a piece that was already orchestrated and have me do a reduction, so just to piano. That's one of the things we did, and then he would uh, give me uh, cue sheets from stuff that he had done. Uh, either ghosted or outright written for mm-hmm. TV shows. And the cue sheets would uh, describe the action on the screen, and there would be critical timings on it. Uh, it would say 5.43 seconds, the wife slaps the husband or something like that, you know. And so you'd have a two-minute cue there that you had to create an underscore for and hit those marks. Mm-hmm. And So that's how I learned about finding tempos that would that would uh, hit all of the spots that were there or close to it, you know. Now, at that hey, time, Bruce, hey, Bruce, can yes, I jump sir. in real quick? Jump because in. I study with Albert Harris as well, and I had a, a very different experience from what you described because I went to him and I said, I'm feeling like when I'm writing for, for orchestral instruments, it's not authentic. Like if I'm writing for the violin or something, it doesn't feel violinistic. You know, it feels like it's a piano line and he's just kind of playing it but he doesn't have that he goes well good one that's because you're writing for the piano you're not writing for the violin so here's what you need to do so he, he got a big piece of orchestral score paper he goes all right the top two lines are strings these two lines are brass these two lines are woodwinds here's you know harp and piano and percussion write eight bars and don't you dare write a single note till you know it's orchestrational destination the orchestration is born with the compositional you know, germ. Go. And I was just used to sitting at the piano and fumbling around and trying to find a little chord structure or a melody and assigning it to instruments. And it was such an epiphany uh, that, that he provided for me. It was really hard. I had to kind of retrain my head. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Yes. What, uh, and uh, I, I, I just loved Albert. I was... I was sorry when he moved away to uh, not Australia, New Zealand, with the, his new wife. And actually, his first wife died right, right there in the house and passed away while he was next to her. And uh, so it was right after that that I spent about two years with him. Where, but yes, that that is very similar. In fact, you would often <clears throat> criticize, you know, instrument choices that I made in that way. And uh, and all my life as a writer, I've run into people that that have looked at my stuff. And one very, very, very good woodwind player who also was a marvelous piano player. But I, he sent me a British uh, score from uh, a piano piece from the 1920s. A uh, fellow named Mayerl was his last name, a great piano player. And he used to play in the English theater during the 20s. But he gave, he sent me this piece uh, through the email, and I I orchestrated it because I loved the piece so much, and I showed the orchestration to him, and I was uh, <laughs> I was thinking he was going to slap me on the back and say good job, and he said, 
I can see that you've never played a woodwind, have you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so we get those things all the time, you know, lessons from people that know better. Well, that's a good good question for me to ask now is like, how do you then without playing a woodwind, Bruce, or Gordon, without playing the violin, how do you then learn to write better for it? I find that I have to hold it. I, I know I can't play it. I remember I sat down with a harpist and I said, show me how this damn thing works. And so she showed me how the pedals worked and how what, what she had to do mechanically to play, especially chromaticism, you know. And so just sitting there and getting my hands on it made, made a, a big difference. But really, it's uh, a lot of listening and a lot of study. Um, and for me, big band instruments were I was around them my whole life since seventh grade so and i played a complete trumpet i can kind of get get around on a little bit and trombone a little bit so um but some of the more exotic ones still remain a, uh, a little bit elusive for me sometimes um but i don't know we're all on the continuum somewhere we're always learning more about what we're doing and and maybe you won't ever get all of it well, well, uh, here's, here's a, a question for orchestrating nowadays because everything is in the box. I mean, they've, we've got oboes and violins and everything. Do you think that having access to that actually helps you learn what sounds better and works better on an instrument, or is it just too keyboard-like where you don't? It doesn't really give you an honest clue as to what that instrument can do. Well, I think I think uh, Gordon's example of the uh, harp is a. Is a good example because unless you have an idea of how those seven pedals work, um, it, you have no way of really writing something that's playable on the harp unless you know. And sometimes with all of the uh, possibilities for uh, uh, for notes being notated uh, in different ways, there's certain ways that make a lot of sense on the harp and other ways that don't. Um, but the... Uh, and then uh, you know, like for a clarinet, for example, you have to know where the where the breaks are on it, so that you don't ask him to do a trill between two notes that are virtually impossible to trill on right. and stuff. Okay, cool. And now, the, so we're going to talk about. I want to kind of going down this or, uh, orchestrating hole right now. And so as you're learning and you're writing, like Bruce, you start writing for a ten piece band, and I, I'm guessing with big band, maybe you know the the structure top to bottom is maybe a little bit more defined, but how would you go learning for orchestral composition if you had a flute, a violin, a viola, and a clarinet? How do they fit with each other in what layers? Is that something you just trial and error, or is there... Well, I think it depends on a lot of things, um, what will work. The range that the instruments are going to be playing in, the dynamic level that the group is, how how full is the background as to what will work and what will be, you know, not going to work. It, it, it's highly dependent on a variety of factors. Yeah, it's, it's, our, it's our question to generalize about, yeah. for, for sure. It depends, on, it depends a lot on the context. But as you, the more you listen to those instruments and then you more, you, more, you add things to your bag of tricks. And, and really the orchestra has been around for, you know, hundreds of years. So it's evolved in a certain way. And there, there are things that, that we know work really well. Instrumental combinations that blend really well and those that don't blend as well. But here's an interesting thing that, that I would bring up is that um, uh, the Big Fat Band has done 
a couple of immersive audio projects. Back in the day, we did uh, surround, uh, some surround sound mixes on three or four of our records. And we just mixed a, uh, a Blu-ray disc on our last record where we had Dolby Atmos mixes. So the mix, I'm, I'm in a studio surrounded by like 30 speakers. And so you have so much environment to spread the information around. So you would find, if you have a soft texture like a flute, it's probably going to get obliterated by a, a compass connection most of the time, right? In, in this immersive audio world, I can stick the flute back there and the trumpets are over here and it coexists oh, in a way that doesn't work in the real world, you know? Right. So, and now that's a problem once you get out of this, this studio and then you get to someone's house and their, their system's not configured exactly the right way or whatever. Right. But, um, that was a real uh, learning experience for me because I thought, well, I can do things when it comes to the audio mix that I never could in a stereo mix or on stage. Interesting. Well, let me, yeah. uh, you know, let's get to some music here. And, and since we're talking about the orchestrating and everything, I'm going to play a little bit of uh, the title track, The Gordian Knot, from your album. Gordon, uh, if, if, if of course it's Gordon's album. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Let me uh, let me find out where I hid this thing and uh, uh, let's see. Let's just take a listen. We can talk about it afterwards. Okay. <laughs> Very cool. So, yeah, that's the title track. I, I, I took, I grabbed the cover with that had the Atmos mastering at the top of it because it just looks cooler. Um, so, uh, but that that piece goes on, and again, the links are in the uh, descriptions, both on YouTube, uh, Facebook, and I believe yeah. I put it in Twitch as well. So, if you want to watch the whole, listen to the whole track, you can do that there. But uh, this is on your Big Fat Band album, and it's kind yeah. of the one. You, it's an outlier. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that has well, a lot of sounds that that are surprising coming from a big group, you know, like uh, big band instrumentation. Uh, I think there must have been some uh, electronic uh, doubling of things in there here and there, right? Yeah, well, well, we, we, we put a string section on it. And, oh. um, but we did also put um, accordion, harpsichord, um, Forget the top of my head. Uh, vibes, yeah. you know, timpani, you know, xylophone. So we, we, we kind of made it 
little orchestral. And as the tune goes on, the jazz kind of starts to creep in and assert itself a little bit more from the kind of more few composed, you know. That's uh, really remarkable. Thank you. Yeah, it it was really, I'm lucky that I got guys in this band who can play that stuff. They can play kind of classical trumpet. Saxophone players can play the woodwinds and um, with some authenticity. But then when it's time to swing, I can get them back on those those horns and they can do that as, as well. Really clean. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of a commitment they make. Yeah, and, and the whole album, I, you know, I listened to it a couple of times about it when we first spoke, Gordon, and it's just really impressed with just sort of the colors on it. It isn't your typical, you know, you have your own voice in big band writing, and that's one of the reasons I'm glad you could come on it, and Bruce as well. And I'm full disclosure, I started playing in Bruce's band in 1984. <laughs> so I've, I've been, and we've actually recorded a couple of his albums here, and I've mixed them, and, uh, and it's been a real pleasure. But to see uh, guys like you two, and Lad McIntosh is another one that does some really different kind of more on the fusion end of things and uh and with orchestration you know, you know, like, what's that it's so, it's so funny to me how small our, our community is because so far you've mentioned lad who i met when i was in high school and and i i just was so impressed by the breadth of his writing uh butch nordahl i played his stuff in northridge oh, i remember yeah. his losing the abstract truth arrangement right. it was an amazing chart he had a chart on billy boy i think maybe that wow. i remember and so um Albert Harris. We're coming mm-hmm. to all these various points of connection. So um, it is kind of a, a intimate uh, community when you're talking about this kind of music. Well, it's funny. Like, there, there used to be a time in L.A. where if there was a vibe player in the band, it was me. <laughs> and I was playing <laughs> with five or six different bands at the same time. And I was surprised how many had the same trumpet players, same sax players, same trumpet, same guys did a lot of the same stuff. And so it was a very small world in that way. But uh <laughs> You're right. So, uh, but Bruce, let, let me just jump on a clip here. I got a bunch of things here. And, uh, we're going to later on get into uh, the uh, the odd meter stuff because Bruce is very into that. And there's a couple of odd meter charts on your on the Gordian Knot album as well. But let me just this is a, a piece called the String Theory uh, from your Redshift album, Bruce. And I, I really like this one because of the colors in it. And let's just see. Let's see which part of the song I took. <laughs> That's uh, that one is a very the, it, 
I'm kind of at a loss for words. It's the the orchestration of that is so beautifully done, and and you're the first big band I, I ever saw that where the woodwind players there were guys playing oboe in your band, in addition to flutes and things like that. And uh, so, do you want to talk a little bit about that piece? Well. Uh yeah, I guess that maybe in some ways it might be typical of some of the things I did in the 1980s um, and how that band evolved from uh, just being a – when I first moved to L.A., I, I think I the first charts I made for that band only had like three trumpets, two trombones, and uh, two woodwinds and uh, and rhythm. And over the years, I, I said, well, you know, I'm going to add some French horns, and I'm going to add another couple of woodwinds and another one. And some. then I, I when I met uh, Steve Foreman, and he taught me all about the possibilities of percussion, um, I, I had, a you know, vibes then and a special percussionist that had a lot of— uh, I didn't realize how many problems that are hauling all the stuff around that a percussionist needs, but— <laughs> Uh, it was wonderful to have that, and so my big band is uh, is not exactly uh, you know like uh, patterned after Basie or Ellington, or you know so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be sounding like the great orchestrations of uh, some of the guys that wrote for that, like Sammy Nestico, of course, who's the master of the Basie sound. But uh, you know, I love the, the medium-sized groups and the large groups and the orchestra sound, and I wanted. Something unique sounding that used uh, the beautiful orchestra instruments that you don't always hear with big band, mm-hmm. but that also had some of the power that you could get. Uh, not not as much as uh, Gordon's band can get with the, you know, uh, the big trumpet section and uh, you know that, that big that that roaring sound with everybody lined up top to bottom. I, I had to give that up, you know, to get the kind of sounds I wanted. I had to give something up too, so there isn't quite as much power to it, but. It, that's what it is. Yeah, but that that the record has a beautiful transparency to it, and and because of that, you can feel the the woodwinds, you can feel the oboe, and and I think it enhances the beautiful harmonies you've got built in compositionally, which is once again maybe getting back to Albert Harris, where it's all tied together, the orchestration, the uh, composition, and also the performance too. You can hear the guys leaning on certain chords a little bit, just say almost instinctively. You know, Absolutely. guys will lean on, on a certain chord tone that they know is the money note. And um, what you said is just so important about how playing a piece, you learn the meaning of the parts. And so certain notes you're going to emphasize, and others you, you maybe, you know, blend more with or something. And, uh, and I love that about uh, about uh, the the great sidemen we have in L.A. How they how they can you know immediately learn the meaning of their parts from just playing it a couple of times and and know how to interpret it. Yeah, yeah. You don't often really talk about it. <laughs> you don't really say, oh, you know, you, you pull that note back a little bit. We are, you know, they just know. And especially if you have guys without ego where they're willing to be a member of the team and, and have it ebb and flow uh, as the music demands, uh, then you got something. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is one of the 
one of the great things about playing around here in LA is there's no shortage of like amazing cats. But again, going back to like Bruce, I think it was it Glenn Garrett brings a, a plays alto, but he brings a piccolo and a flute and an oboe and an English horn and all this. And then it's just a, it's great. The orchestrations are fantastic. But uh, you know, okay, let's move a little bit of this. I, I'm going to talk about just arranging, arranging. And I've got a clip from Gordon and one from Bruce of uh, non-original tunes. But this first one is "Summertime," uh, Gordon. The video you sent me. Yeah, who is uh, singing on this track? Uh, her name is Vanjie Gunn, and, I, and I've known Vanjie for ten years as a session singer, a kind of a pop singer. And then uh, we needed someone to start doing some gigs with the band, and I and I saw her uh, stylistic range. Never really heard her sing jazz. She's kind of a pop or R and B based uh, singer, but has a great understanding of jazz and also of inhabiting the song and selling it and committing to it, as maybe you'll see on the video. Yeah, and okay, let me find that up here. Here we go. why I, I started halfway through the piano solo. <laughs> I think I wanted to show some of that, but I also wanted people to hear the, the backgrounds that you have in there. And this is a typical big band thing where the solos is playing and there's background accompaniment parts. And, uh, and very often that might lead to a shout chorus and then the head comes back in. But uh, so... I, can you guys, we, we have some people listening. Actually, I'm going to say hi to some of our regulars are here. We've got Arndt from Germany who's up who said uh, he saw Gordon's big band at uh, the Knitting Factory in 2001. He was blown <laughs> away, and he's been a fan of yours ever since. Arndt well, is we our, had, he's we our had, we had barely we, we had barely started in 2001. He is our regular from Germany, comes to a lot of the shows. He gets up early in the morning to go to work, and he can see that. Oh. If we could talk for a second, let's say people don't. Uh, they they listen to jazz or listen to big band or whatever, but they may not. Is there something we can teach them about the structure of big band charts that might enhance the next time they listen to something? I guess that's an open question. I, let me. I, when I studied with, uh, I took a big band arranging class with Lad McIntosh, and he had us starting out with Sonata Farm. 
you know, he would have the melody, then the variation is the solo sections, then a shout chorus, and then recapitulation and the head. And I don't know if that's, that's probably overgeneralizing, but I just want to know if you guys had any little tips on listening and what's going on. You want to take that, Bruce? Uh, actually, I was hoping you might, <laughs> but it's a really good question, and I, and I wanted to kind of uh, think about it for a second, but um, well, go ahead. I would just say that, that what Lad had you do uh, is a good way to start off. I think you have to start off like like um, a lot of players do by imitating things that they like. Right. Learning about, okay, how did he get that sound and how did he... So I think it's the same thing with writing. And so you do find that there are more uh, predictable formulas that you can use to construct a chart. But after you've done it about 100 times, if you're desirous of growing as a composer and as a musician, your guts are kind of pushing you to try, what next? What can I do this, this but not this? And then the other thing that factors in sometimes is economics, because if I'm hired to write a chart right. for a film or even a commission for somebody, they might have a specific um, goal for that chart where they want it in their set. They might have heard something else I wrote that they want me to emulate. And so then you're kind of trying to skin the cat in a similar way, but different. And so your craft really comes into play. And, and I've worked really hard on the craft of arranging so that if I'm not inspired, it's still going to be okay. And, and, and so, um, uh, like the arrangement of summertime you heard was fairly conventional in terms of it starts off, which we didn't hear, but it starts off without rubato introduction and then Vanjie sings it kind of pretty. Then we kick into this piano sonato and the groove starts. And for me, thinking about the song Summertime, I was thinking, okay, what can I do to put it in different clothes without distorting it? Because the song is perfect. I don't want to mess up the song. I don't want to, I don't want to abuse the melody. I can take some liberties with the chords, but uh, I feel a responsibility to George Gershwin. Absolutely. And any composer. I, I would, if you don't mind my cutting in, I, I really thought that you did a great job of kind of saving the vocal for, you know, halfway into the piece. And, and, uh, and when she came in and introduced Summertime, I don't think anyone could have been aware that we were doing Summertime unless they looked at the title first, probably on the album, because it was uh, it, it almost blindsided you to hear Summertime there. And yet it, it was well prepared. I mean, it's it uh, it satisfied everything that that the song the needed. Late grat the late gratification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Cool. Then let's jump over. We're talking about arranging things. This is uh, Bruce this is your version of all blues from your album album uh, uh, Blues and Other Passions. And this is kind of gets us into the odd meter world. And do you want to talk about it ahead of time or should we explain what's going on afterwards? Uh, well, I like odd meters and mostly I got into them because of uh, playing with Ayerto back in the 70s and Flora Purim. And before that, I was highly interested in, uh, in the 1950s work of uh, uh, the Latin guys, uh, Tito Puente and Tito Rodriguez, and uh, listening to their playing, there was always other time things going on. They would have, 
you know, these extended drum solos where you knew where the time was, but by the time it got in the middle, there were so many superimposed rhythms uh, of a completely different groove over the top of them. I found that just fascinating. And so uh, when I played with Ayerto, and of course he did a lot of stuff in seven, I started writing some pieces in seven. And then... uh, and then I did some in thirteen, one in nine, and one in uh, one in five. That's actually in one. So the five is We're so gonna fast. We're going to play that a little bit down the road. But let me let me go into this. And just so you know, this is all blues. This is still in twelve. It's just right permutated a little bit differently. And I, I, let's see if this might have been the one that I kind of fade out and come in again later on. Let's just see what I did here. Wait a minute. I seem to have lost. Oh, there you are. Yeah. <laughs> Little technical thing there. Yeah, so that's the that's the old Emil Richards version of uh, All Blues that uh, we did an amazing arrangement of it. And you can hear the different see, colors see, and everything. That's what I'm talking about. So what Bruce did there, he takes the song we all know. The melody is more or less as we understand it, which gives it great balance because rhythmically, He's 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 got a lot of sleight of hand going on the rhythmically, which is keeps you kind of on your toes. So we have the security of the melody that we know to balance off um, the, uh, the way that he uh, was able to color the song in a different, unique manner. And then to take the Bill Evans duty duty do like uh, back and forth chords and utilize that as a as a both a groove element and a rhythmic element is another thing where we. We grab onto it. Well, yeah, I know that thing, you know. I so forgot about that. Just, that was Bill Evans playing that that little uh, slow trill thing. And uh, you're right. I forgot all about that. Well, it reminds me. I heard a, a, somebody talking about, I think they were talking about technology or something, but it actually really applies to music. He said, if you're going to do something unique, make it familiar. And if you're going to do something familiar, make it unique, which you've done. You have the familiarity of the melody, but you've yeah. taken this unique approach to the five, five plus seven is 12. You know, and then but I and then I did fade it out a little bit. And I wanted to play a little bit of the kind of the solely section there that because uh, it's such pretty weaving between the different sections and that sort of thing. But uh, well, let's let's move on. Let's see what else do I got over here. Uh, since we're talking about the odd meters, let's uh, jump into this is uh, find a place. Bruce's find a place track. Oh yeah. And uh, this is seven eight, and I, I've got a little bit of it here. So let's take a listen. Find a place. 
Yeah, Bruce, that's, uh, I remember when you brought that in for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that title, by the way, was, uh, you said it was Find a Place. That that was uh, oh. on one of the records as a vocal, but th- that one is called Some Place I've Never Been. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry to correct you. <laughs> no, that's okay. Now, now they know what to go find when they go look for the album. <laughs> But uh, now you you got into your odd meters because Vierto and Flora and, and and more like that, but uh, not a ton of guys do that with the big band that I've known. Well, I guess Don Ellis, but uh, absolutely, yeah, but, Don uh, did a lot of that. And uh, okay, well let's let's go on. And now, Gordon, I think the first track on your Gordian Knot album is an odd meter, isn't it? It's the first one or the second one? One of the tracks. Um, there's a track. There's a track called Neil Before Zod, which is a Superman reference. Uh, that's in that's in seven. I, I um, got into seven doing a lot of uh, film scoring work, and it seemed and I was working uh, with a composer who who was com- comfortable in seven. For me, seven is as comfortable as four four. I mean, I'm definitely it's pretty it's pretty pretty uh, pretty natural feeling. But I also had an experience with Hank Levy when I was a. Uh, a little kid. I mean, I went to the Stan Kenton summer jazz camp and they had it at the university of Redlands. You might remember they recorded a record at live at Redlands with the Kenton band. And I'm in, uh, I think I'm a freshman in high school. I'm sitting in the front row. There's pictures. You can see me this far away from the Kenton band, just soaking it up. And I got to hang a little bit with Hank Levy and they were playing a lot of Hank charts at that time. Matter of fact, they had a compos- composition uh, contests at the camp that uh, that week, and the winning comp- uh, composer got to go up and conduct the Kenton band. So they picked my chart. Wow. So I got to go up there and have them um, sight read uh, a, a chart that I wrote. <clears throat> and I mean, it was life changing. But here's what's really cool: about five years ago, I get a package in the mail, and there's a note from somebody, handwritten note that says, "Thought you'd like a little glimpse into your past." And there's a CD. So I open it up and I put it in and I hear Stan Kenton introducing me, oh, my man. ninth, ninth grade year old self. Oh man. Wow. <laughs> and and I, I hear myself go up there and talk with Stan a little bit. He's joking around and then I get up and I conduct this piece. And I had not thought or heard about it, you know, for decades. And somebody was out in the audience with a little reel-to-reel <laughs> recorder. Wow. Oh, and, man. and made a CD and sent it to me out of the blue. That's great. That's very so cool. amazing. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I, one of the things I don't do on the show often enough is I don't read the resumes and all that fancy stuff. But I was looking at your your film credits, things like The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Escape to Witch Mountain, Get Smart, uh, uh, and I was actually watching Star Trek Nemesis today. <laughs> and it's funny that it pops up. But that, uh, see, I, I worked on the Star Trek movie that killed the franchise for about a decade. It, it's not their best. <laughs> I went. I had a, a meeting with that director, and he goes, "Now, I'm not really a trekker." I go, "Well, they call it a trekkie." He goes, "Well, whatever." Really he goes, "All right." So the senior doing the, the character. Uh, his name is um, his name is Data. I go, his name's Data. <laughs> so I'm like correcting this guy. He goes, "The reason I'm a good director is I don't know anything about this shit. So I'm good for this." 
So turns out that maybe not as good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everyone hated that movie. That, and, I, and I hate to bring it up because I imagine everybody asks you about this uh, every time, but Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, they hated that one too. Yeah. Hey. Uh, uh, that's a great movie. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm a fan. Yeah, you're I'm, generous. I'm you are fan. generous. Well, I can tell <laughs> I you, I'm, I can remember sitting in, at Glen Glen Sound. And when that movie came out, this was before VCRs. Mm-hmm. So I had to go meet with the director and we watched the movie in a screening room at Glen Glen. After about 15 minutes, I'm realizing, oh man, I'm not laughing. Oh man, oh, I got to start laughing. Because he's looking at me, and it's, it was so horrible that I would, I'd be way better at it now, but I was just out <laughs> of college, you know, and I got this cake fall on my lap, and I didn't know how to score a movie. I had never been in a recording studio before. So it was, it was a, a baptism of fire wow. <laughs> for sure. That's pretty but, intense, um, but it's, I mean, it's a cult anyway, classic. Thanks for, that, thanks for the memories there. It's a cult classic. I remember seeing that when I was in high school. I was only a few years behind you. But anyway, okay. <laughs> uh, well, now we're talking, I guess, again, about uh, uh, scoring. And so I'm going to play. You have a clip of uh, your big band doing The Incredibles. Yes. And is, it, is this the, the theme? Is this what, Tell us what the arrangement's well, about here. The, if the, this video is just an arrangement I did of some of the themes. But I worked on the first Incredibles in 2004 and um, again in the Incredibles 2, which was uh, 14 years later. And um, this was a this is one of those cases where the director, his name is Brad Bird, wanted that James Bond jazzy thing. He, and and so I was able to between you know, Michael Giacchino and I we were able to call Wayne Bergeron and all the guys and write that. And the director just didn't, he just sat back and let us do our thing. And when he mixed it, the music's really loud, especially Incredibles too. You can hear Wayne Bergeron as a, like a defining character in the movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, well, Wayne is a, is a very well-known lead trumpet player here, here in Los Angeles. And, uh, and he's going to be upset if he's watching. He said he'd like to come on the show sometime. I'm trying to get together a brass thing. But, uh, and Wayne, I'm just going to apologize that I start the video with the last three notes of your solo. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so, all right. Well, there it is. I'm apologizing up front. So, uh, but that'll give you a sneak peek, and you guys will all really want to see Wayne come on the show. Here, here's uh, The Incredibles.
Okay, that was wow. just a little snippet of it. It's like a six-minute video, and it, the whole thing's amazing. I just, like I told you before, I don't want to spend just playing records the whole time. because. Yeah, well, that, that was just the development section, you know, kind of having fun on that on that Austin Auto. Um, and the chart, there's nothing super subtle about the chart. It's kind of like bashing in your face the whole way, kind of like the movie was. Yeah, the movies, um, the, you know, oh, everything Pixar does, they kind of hit it out of the park with the story and everything. And those movies are no exception. They're just great. And the music really does fit. Uh, you know, interesting, we had, uh, you know, the music is so serious. And even though it's kind of a comedy, uh, Ron Jones, the composer was on a couple of weeks ago, and he said when he was doing DuckTales, he says, he says, well, these little kids are watching it, but when you're a little kid, you don't think you're a stupid kid. You think you're serious. <laughs> so it really, it's just along those mm. lines. It's like, it's a serious movie score because the, Incredibles are serious about what they're doing. So I was. Yeah, you have to take it serious. Yeah, in the story. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Uh, I'm trying to think. Okay, we got another. I have one more clip for each of you. Let's go to Bruce's. This is Redshift. This is the the title track from Redshift. And this is in 5.8 or 5.16, but it's really more of a one feel. Right, Bruce? Um, that, that's right. It's, it's actually in five, eight, but, but it's in, it's in one and each bar, uh, it, it kind of ends up sounding a bit like the blues when you, when you get used to the groove of it after, a you know, 20 bars or so you forget about the fact that it's in five and it feels a little bit like the blues, you know? Which is really apparent. I don't have any of it in here, but if you, when you get to the solo section, the, the chord changes are very much like the blues, but in five eight. So let's let's take a listen here. That's great. Thank you, Gordon. Yeah, that was a that was a fun one because we tracked that with rhythm section first, and then I think each section came in separately to record their parts for that. Was that that album, Bruce? Pardon me. I, that, I thought that, that's the one where we had the uh, rhythm section did everything first, then we had each section come in individually. And do I think parts. you're right. That's true. Yeah, and it's it's so well written. It blends all so nicely together but it's like it's almost like the the five is in four but a very slow four with <laughs> yeah. five sub right, divisions right. of everything and That's that just fine. gives it this lilting it doesn't sound odd it's not one of those i don't listen to it and think wow that's odd 
<laughs> People out there are digging it. So hopefully you'll go. The links are in the comments section. So while you're up there liking the video and subscribing and following us, you can click on the links and, and watch the whole videos and listen to the whole albums and and, uh, and support these guys. So, But uh, let's go to, your, Gordon, your other thing is, now this is Reset, and this is something you did during the pandemic. So this is all recorded remotely, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we did. That, that's Everybody in the band kind of adapted to the lack of sessions and, and live gigs. And a lot of them had gear and studios and interfaces, as it were. But those that didn't got, good, got, got it all uh, set to go. And, uh, and I wrote this piece called The Reset, which was kind of I was watching my own life where everything got stripped away and I didn't have my usual stuff. And, and I found myself adjusting certain priorities. And I started to observe that with a lot of people, resetting priorities and things like that. So um, this thing is I, I try to write something without uh, an obvious melody or a hook. I tend to value melody a lot. And I thought, well, if I can just write something that's just kind of more uh, free associating, but with a groove. It's got a bunch of guitar on it. It's got a, it does have programming. It's got drum loops and, and different things. Um, and it was the kind of thing that recording it remotely uh, was perfect for this piece because it was more about kind of precision than, what, than it was about like playing a Count Basie chart where you have to interact and blend and all that stuff. Um, so, I don't know, you can listen to a few hours, let's see what you think. That's but, exactly um, the question I was going to ask you, because the idea of recording individual parts for a big band when they're doing this, but the, the way you orchestrated the piece really lends itself to having a large group of people do it. Because so many cats are passing around tracks, and there's four people. But I was really yeah, well, I find that I need to have the lead players first. So if I can get Wayne Bergeron and Andy Martin and Eric Berenthal, then those guys can tune to them because the intonation is the tricky bit. Because when, when these musicians are playing together, they're making thousands of small decisions that affect intonation and blend. And just if, if to have them play it, you know, out of context, all of a sudden things are out of tune. It would never be out of tune. Right. Were they in the same room? So I, I, we found that if we can get the lead players down first, make sure their parts feel right, then the other guys can play to those, and then you create the illusion of interaction. Right. Okay, well, I, I, here's a clip from that. Uh, where are we? Here it is.
So there's that's a again that's just a little snippet from that, but the link is in the comments. So everybody can go check it out. It's really a cool piece. Really good. Yeah, yeah. and I can I can hear I've just mentioning that as long as you delete players first, then you can really hear how the sections could get the phrasing and everything from that lead player. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that this kind of remote recording is not going anywhere. Yeah, I uh, I did some teaching over the over this pandemic, and I had a band of kids. And because geography was no longer an issue, I had kids from Japan in the band. Yeah, I had six kids from Australia. I had kids from the UK and all of the United States. We never would have been able to play together were it not the fact that we use technology in order to do it. Now, we can't really play together over the internet, mm-hmm. but we can talk about the music. I can kind of have each kid play something. Then they record their parts, send them to me. I make my notes. They, record, they redo them again. And eventually we have... Um, a cohesive thing. And it's, so basically our, our uh, performance becomes the YouTube premiere as opposed to these kids playing, you know, in their spring, in their auditorium at their school, which they couldn't do last year. So it, it was fascinating, but I found myself talking to these kids about technology and how to mic yourself and how to shoot video of yourself. So it mm-hmm. looks decent and, and things like that, that, uh, well, actually, the kids are kind of intuitive about some of that stuff. No, I, I'm getting I get a lot of calls from guys that ask about helping set up their home recording stuff, and also guys, people asking me video questions and streaming questions and stuff. And I think you're right; the younger kids seem to know what a shot should look like, and some yeah. other people it's like, "Oh, wow! I wish you hadn't shot it like that." But but it, yeah, it's right. a learning process, and I think we're all going to be even better at it in another year. So it's great to see, Gordon, when you were doing that. The brass part with the short notes. Bop, 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 bop. I thought you were going to do T for two there. <laughs> it is a little T for two-ish. But really, it's supposed to be just two dot, 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 three notes. that just kind of are random. And I don't know about how it sounds on your end. It's kind of phasey and weird on my end. So you can't even hear the kind of distance in the voicings and all that stuff. But um, nonetheless, uh it, it, it's it, it gets pretty crazy from where you started it as it goes through. I don't know, six or oh, seven I minutes. Here's great. the other thing I did, by the way. I have six different mixes with six, six different soloists. <laughs> so when we release, we're going to do a digital release, and they'll have like basically to hear a trumpet solo, a sax solo, a trombone solo, a guitar solo, kind of whatever they want. Which is another thing that this technology allows. If you got two drummers in your band, well, they need to do two mixes and one drummer plays on one mix and the other plays on the other other mix so uh anyway thank you for playing it um yeah no and and just you know it does get broadcast in stereo over the interwebs your, your our connection tonight is mono between all of us so sometimes the phasing is weird but the people out yeah. there are hearing it in stereo so uh well i guess you know we, we've kind of run through a lot of the topics we had talked about already so do you guys have any parting comments any you know composers words of wisdom for people out there well work on your ear that's the most important thing more important than even mastering your instrument and playing in great time is to develop your ear and it it isn't a thing that happens overnight you just have to work on it and keep at it good yeah yeah learning to listen for young musicians is something that um they're so busy trying to see what is this note, what is this rhythm, what is this fingering, and teaching listening skills is 
solves a lot of those problems. If you learn how to do that, all the other stuff can fall in line. But the other thing that I would mention is that, uh, okay, so you're talking about tips. Yes. And how the audience of, of, uh, of your show are partners in supporting this music mm-hmm. and ensuring its survival on some level. Because the truth of it is, if you're looking at somebody like Bruce or me or somebody who's standing up in front of the big band, probably they wrote a check to do it. Probably they <laughs> made a sacrifice to do it. And the economics just don't work. And it's getting worse because no one's buying music now. Yeah. So the question becomes, we've released nine records and I've lost money on every single one. What's wrong with me? Why would I, why would you do a business where you, you can't sell your widget for anywhere close to what you paid to make it? Mm-hmm. So there are other reasons to do things besides money. I will say that, but I'm lucky and versus you know, living in LA, we have other ways to make money. Mm-hmm. And so that we can support our big band habit. And um, I think we have to solve that problem. I, I think that, You've mentioned a couple of times how to explain how, how, how the sound of this genre works leads towards understanding and appreciation for mm-hmm. the listeners. I think that's a, an important thing for us to do, especially with younger, younger uh, people. Otherwise, this music's going to be in the museum before we know it. Right. And, um, and I think we need to be mindful of the sacrifices that not only the leaders and the composers, but the musicians routinely make play this music and to be a part of it. Well, the reason we started the whole series is start out just live concerts from my studio because everybody in town lost all of their work for the year. And people came through with tips and things like that. We're hoping to keep that up because, you know, it does, especially I was talking to somebody else who's doing their next big band album now and he told me what it's going to cost him. And I was like, wow, I mean, that's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, to think that uh, with streaming services now, it's incredibly difficult to make any money back on anything. You know, yeah. a lot of things can still be purchased on Amazon or uh, Bandcamp. A lot of people are going there to, to make some money back. But, uh, you know, th- the listener support is invaluable. And I think. Uh, I think it's uh, one of the elements that you're talking about is created by technology. And that is the fact that information is free now. Mm-hmm. And information includes everything, everything you can read, everything that you can listen to. The minute it it gets, uh, I mean, even if you copyright it, the minute it goes out the door, it's gone and it's free. That's that's the technique or the uh, technical world we've we've bought the dream of. Let's wrap it up here. This was this was fantastic, and I I love that we actually had more interaction tonight than we normally do. And I want to thank you both, not only for coming on the show, but just for you know, producing the music you've done. It's just been a gift, and uh, I really appreciated that. And and I'm sure everybody else is. Uh, several people have said they're going to take a deep dive on both of you guys to hear more of what you're doing, which is great. Tell your friends, get them to watch the the archive or listen to the podcast, and, and let's see if we can't uh, help fund some more albums out there. <laughs> So anyway, thank you again, Gordon. And thank Thanks, you, Bruce. Billy. And thank um, you, Bruce. Good we'll, to we'll see do, you. We'll nice seeing you. Thank road. you, now, Billy. I'm gonna play the outro and I want you all to sit and watch it because I spend a ton of money on this voiceover guy. So anyway, <laughs> we'll see you. Oh, but actually before we leave, I, 
Well, go to the website. I'm not, I, that was such a great thing to end on. I don't want to go through the commercial, but we've got live Latin jazz band this Thursday, and you know, get on our mailing list, do that sort of thing, because we do live jazz every Thursday, and then two or three Tuesdays a month, I do the jazz roundtable talk show. So we'll see you guys all out there, and uh, here is next week's or th- th- this week's closing video. Thanks for joining us at Live at Zero BPM. These videos we archived on YouTube and Facebook, so tell your friends. These jazz roundtable shows will also be released as a podcast, so please subscribe. Coming up on Tuesday, June 15th, it's the Jazz Roundtable number eight, Sax Night, featuring Doug Webb, Brandon Fields, and Eric Marienthal. Showtime, 7 to 8 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. And as always, it's free, though donations are greatly appreciated. Go to live at 0bpm.com for details and to sign up for our mailing list. Also, find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. See you soon.